folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visiview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast, all one word, the Farm Podcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, folks, today's guest is making his maiden voyage on the farm. He has contributed to many progressive publications, such as the Progressive Magazine, Counterpunch, the LA Progressive, the Huffington Post, Z Magazine, ZNet, and has appeared in various media outlets, including on radio and television programs. He is also a contributor to the Peace website developed by historian Roger Peace that provides comprehensive overviews of major U.S. wars and assesses them from a just war perspective. He's also active in local groups as a, and is a board member of the Tulsa Peace Fellowship, a friend of the Asia Pacific Journal, and on the steering committee for Historians for Peace and Democracy. And he also happens to be the editor-in-chief of a little publication known as Covert Action Magazine. Some of you may have heard of that one. And finally, he is the author of four books, The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce, The Myth of the Addicted Army, Vietnam and the Modern War on Drugs, Modernizing Repression, Police Training and Nation Building in the American Century, Obama's Unending War, the, front, the Fronting the Foreign Policy for, of the Permanent Warfare State. Folks, I give you guys Jeremy Kuzmara. Jeremy, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, thank you very much. Well, Mr. Kuzmara here has a new book forthcoming called Warmongerer, How Clinton's Malignant Foreign Policy Launched the U.S. Trajectory from Bush 2 to Biden. And he has graciously agreed to give us a sneak peek for today's show. We're going to consider Bill Clinton as a, a Bill Clinton CIA connections going way back to his college days and heavily a little place called Mia, Arkansas, Clinton's carefully crafted image and how his foreign policy arguably set the stage for the rivers of blood the world is currently drowning in is going to be quite an outing. So on that note, let us start the show. <laughs> Okay, so oftentimes the beginning is the best place to start. So let's go back to the origins of Bill Clinton's links to the national security state. So tell us, sir, a bit about his early work with a guy called Cord Muir. And as, uh, also, could you give us a bit of an overview of Mr. Uh, Cord? He is quite a colorful character in his own right. Yeah, well, Cord Meyer uh, was a very uh, upper echelon CIA agent, uh, you know, from the uh, you know, old boys uh, establishment. Uh, he'd been connected with the Kennedy assassination. Uh, I believe uh, E. Howard Hunt fingered him as one of the CIA agents who may have been involved in that. And Meyer admitted, I guess he got drunk one night and he admitted uh, 
uh, in front of a number of people, according to Roger Morris, who uh, wrote an important book called The Clintons and Their America, which really probed into the background uh, of the Clintons. And Morris had been uh, resigned from the uh, staff of Nixon during the heart of the Vietnam War of the invasion of Cambodia. Anyway, Cordmeyer Jr. admitted that Clinton had been recruited by the CIA back when he was a college student. Uh, he was well. He was either is believed he was recruited when he was Clinton at, at Georgetown or at Oxford. And when he was at Oxford, he was a roommate of Strobe Talbot, who came from a, a very well connected establishment family. I believe Talbot's uncle had been secretary of the Air Force, and his fa uh, he had family members in the CIA, and he was probably in the CIA. And he was a Russian language expert who became the Russian correspondent for Time Magazine for a period. And then he actually helped coordinate Clinton's uh, Russian policy when Clinton was the president. And when they were roommates, yeah, the two went on a mission into the Soviet Union to smuggle out the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev, who had denounced Stalin. And that you know served certain U.S. purposes in the Cold War because, uh, because of Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. They can play that up, how oppressive the Soviet Union was and how you know justified America was. Uh, so that seemingly was yeah, Clinton's uh, first mission with the CIA. It's alleged you know, Clinton was involved in some anti-war protests, although people who knew him at Oxford said that he was always in the moderate wing of the anti-war movement. You know, he didn't really criticize as an imperialistic war, aggressive war, uh, more as a mistake. But uh, it is believed he may have been informant on the anti-war movement. Uh, so, and that, you know, set the groundwork when he was the uh, uh, very young governor of Arkansas, he oversaw a major CIA operation to finance the, uh, you know, to smuggle arms to the Nicaraguan Contras, uh, in the 1980s. And then, you know, as president, he supported the regeneration of the CIA, uh, after the end of the cold war and, and the growth of the military industrial complex in that time period. Uh, also, too, if I recall correctly, Hillary Clinton was what a Goldwater supporter, right, when she was in college. That's correct. Yeah, she came. Her father was an ardent Republican. Uh, she started out as a Goldwater Republican. Then she was a student leader at Wellesley. And I guess she gained national prominence by giving a valedictory speech at Wellesley uh, that got a lot of publicity. There were some dignitaries in the audience. And by that point, she had migrated to more to the liberal camp. But there are suspicions that she may have been, you know, why was she elevated as a student leader? You know, she wasn't particularly radical. I mean, in that era, you know, when she graduated college, I believe it was 67, uh, that period, 67, 68. I mean, you had the Students for Democratic Society, a very prominent campus organization, and a lot of their leaders were pretty radical, you know challenging the fundamental of U.S. foreign policy, calling out the United States as an imperialistic country, uh, supporting the more radical you know, black movements. But Clinton, you know, Hillary was uh, never very radical. And so why, you know, people ask the question, who looked into her career, why was she given national attention and prominence? Uh, what was so special about her? And she wasn't really key in the leadership of SDS, um, and then, you know, she worked on, on Watergate. She was a lawyer for in the Watergate hearings. And, you know, the CIA was behind Watergate in an attempt to undermine Nixon. They had their own agenda uh, as to why they disliked Nixon, you know, was challenging the CIA in some ways. And there's a huge amount of scholarship that has shown uh, that, that the CIA uh, was involved in Watergate and that it was kind of a coup, especially perhaps because of Nixon's detente policy with the Soviet Union and, you know, uh, opening to China, uh, that, you know, neoconservatives and the CIA were against Nixon, and they ultimately engineered, you know, the rise of Ronald Reagan and the neocons into power. Uh, so the, the CIA, and there's a lot of uh, evidence has come to light about how the CIA was behind Watergate. So uh, that breeds additional, you know, question mark about Hillary Clinton, there's less evidence that Clinton was tied to the CIA than Bill, but the two worked together. I mean, clearly that was a marriage of convenience uh, where they were benefiting each other's careers rather than a love marriage, given Bill's well-known uh, massive infidelities and sexual transgressions.
Let's uh, circle back here to Amina uh, and Clinton's role in it. Are there any uh, interesting details that you have uncovered that haven't been widely reported? And if so, could you break them down for us? Yeah, my, yeah, my book gives a kind of comprehensive overview uh, uh, into that and shows Clinton's central role. I think, well, it, it, it also it provides firstly new evidence about the operation, how central the CIA was involved in that. You know, because they were smuggling arms to the Nicaraguan Contras was a counter-revolutionary group, uh, a lot of consisting uh, quite largely of um, remnants of the old dictator. You know, because there was a, a revolution in Nicaragua, a socialist revolution in 1979. The, the country had been run by Anastasio Somoza, a U.S.-backed dictator. When he was overthrown, a lot of his supporters tried to overthrow the Sandinista government, and the CIA was mobilizing them. And out of Mina, yeah, in the western part of Arkansas, they were smuggling arms clandestinely to the Contras. And you know, 1984, Congress cut off aid to the Contras because they were characterized as a terrorist organization. The Sandinistas had actually taken the case to the World Court because they had been mining Nicaragua's harbors and they had been committing terrorist acts to try and sabotage the Sandinista government, which won elections in 1984. So this was, yeah, very, you know, uh, and Congress cut off military aid, so there had to be clandestine uh, armed shipments. You know, and that was the whole all-over North operation and the Iran-Contra, where they were carrying out illicit uh, arm deal with the Iranians uh, and also raising revenue through drug smuggling. And Mina was was key to the whole Iran Contra operation, and it was you know they were smuggling arms out of, through these uh, clandestine flights out of Mina, and also there was drug running involved. And yeah, I did extensive research on this, including uh, through uh, contact with some whistleblowers and research. There, there was a group, the Arkansas Committee. It was a group of students at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville who had investigated this back in the 80s and early 90s, and they deposited their papers and findings at the university library. So a uh, review of their files uh, finds a lot of insights, including yeah, the central role of the CIA, like the CIA even shook down local gun shop owners to basically steal guns that they could uh, have shipped to Nicaragua from MENA. And they uh, drove some gun gun owners a business like drove them into bankruptcy. They basically stole their guns uh, from them, shook them down, and, and never even paid for the guns. Uh, and then one guy, when he started, uh, it was that that's in the file of the library. The story of this guy named John Holmes, whose whole business was ruined because of this. Uh, so uh, you get a, and then there are um, letters from certain drug smugglers uh, who talked about the CIA's role and how they had smuggled drugs for the CIA uh, uh, in those files. Um, and then there's evidence that has come to light about how, you know, because Bill Clinton claimed, oh, he didn't know about this, and then they investigated it. But actually, the investigation were quashed. There were some legitimate investigations that were being carried out uh, by the IRS and by certain local police agents. But but Clinton made sure to quash those investigations, and new information has come to light about that. And also, you know, more information about how Clinton was very centrally involved, how he he traveled and was seen in Mina numerous times. Um, and then the revelation of uh, Joseph Capucci was a high-level uh, uh, intelligence uh, officer and kind of liaison between the CIA and organized crime. And her daughter said that, uh, you know, Clinton, uh, her father knew Clinton and that, that Clinton was very uh, central to all this. And there's also Terry Reid was a whistleblower uh, who revealed a lot of information about Clinton's direct oversight. And more information yeah, in, in these files uh, comes to light about the financial arrangement with Arkansas banks that Clinton helped to enable. And, you know, Jackson Stevens was a key donor to Clinton, and he owned the Stevens Investment House, which was a huge uh, investment house. that is still, if you go to Little Rock, you see that they, uh, their signs and they, they have offices in the you know, most prominent building in the city. Uh, and he was involved in the money laundering operation through local banks, including banks that he set up. Uh, and another Clinton donor, Dan Lasseter, also did a lot of the uh, financial work. 
Uh, and then there's Clinton's, uh, and he was also involved in, in drug running himself. He got arrested ultimately, and he was connected with Clinton's brother, Roger. And then Hillary was the head of the Rose Law, well, was a partner in the Rose Law Firm, and they represented Stevens. So they, uh, uh, Rose Law Firm and Hillary, were involved in these financial arrangements for laundering the money from the MENA smuggling operation. Two questions. So first, uh, it had occurred to me um, when you had brought up the drug trafficking, I had remembered um, the so-called bluegrass conspiracy. Um, one of the catches I found when I was researching that was a, a fascinating picture from, I believe it was 1983 at uh, one of the Kentucky Derby parties uh, that shows a young Hillary, Hillary Clinton, I believe also a young Bill Clinton, along with a young Donald Trump and uh, Governor John Y. Brown. Of course, uh, John Y. Brown was closely connected to a lot of the uh, the drug activities that the company, a kind of uh, collection of former military and law enforcement personnel that were trafficking guns and firearms and also seemed to have been tied up in the uh, the Contra dealings. So anyway, my question is basically if you uncovered any more about that, because I know uh, Clinton developed a pretty close relationship with John Y. Brown, and he was sort of described as uh, molding his image to some extent after uh, Brown early on, sort of the, you know, uh, reformed Southern Democrat, if you will. Um, that's quite interesting. Um, I don't know too much about that. I mean, yeah, I know... You know, as far as uh, a part of the uh, early part of the book goes into what you're describing, how Clinton was this new breed of conservative Democrat who really courted a large financial uh, interests, who was tied with the new Democratic uh, movement, uh, and new Democrats, as they called themselves, and really the transformation of the party away from a party that supported the New Deal and was in league with labor unions uh, toward one that openly courted a large corporate interest and tried to lure them away from the Democratic Party. And yet Clinton really pissed off the uh, AFL-CIO branch in Arkansas. He, you know, he kind of tried to win their support, but he repeatedly stabbed them in the back. And their leader uh, at one point said publicly, yeah, Clinton, he'll pat you on the back and then he'll piss down your leg. That Bill Clinton. Uh, so as far as the corruption, um, well, I do know Dan Lasseter, you know, would would fly like Clinton to the Kentucky Derby. And Lasseter had a, uh, he owned this ranch in New Mexico that was a front for drug smuggling. And he, you know, he owned a lot of the restaurants and he was a big, a wealthy businessman. But yeah, I know he, so he probably flew Clinton to the Kentucky Derby and he was one of Clinton's biggest donors and he would have these drug sex party, you know, before there was Epstein, you know, that was Clinton's way of life from the time in Arkansas and Lasseter was his kind of sugar daddy who would host these drug sex parties and Roger Clinton worked with Lasseter uh, yeah, and they would have trips to the Kentucky Derby. So, you know, probably these other uh, other uh, governors were invited to some of these uh, fancy parties and they were really exploiting underage women at these parties. And there was copious drug use. I mean, the hypocrisy of Clinton, you know, because he was a big time drug warrior, even as a governor. You know, I go into some detail uh, about his dr the drug war that he declared in the state of Arkansas as a prelude to when he was president. He really ramped up Reagan's drug war. And yet he himself is alleged to have been a, a cocaine user who may have been hospitalized twice for a cocaine problem and went to these drug sex parties and lived this uh, decadent lifestyle, bankrolled by people like Lassiter, uh, who were giving him money and were involved in drugs and money laundering. Yeah, I was just going back through um, Sally Denton's wonderful book on um, the intrigues in uh, Kentucky that I was just referencing, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. Yeah, it, look, it looks like the Lassiter connection was how Clinton was connected, um, reportedly through this fellow called James Purdy, uh, Jimmy Lambert. Uh, to quote from uh, Denton's book here on page 369, in 1996, a published biography of Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, Partners in Crime, reveals that Lambert had also been the conduit for some $300,000 in cash given to then-Governor John Y. Brown by Clinton and Brown intimate Don Lassiter, a fast food and bond brokerage millionaire suspected of ties to organized crime 
and who, continuing on the 70, would later be convicted himself on drug charges. According to FBI records, Brown through Lambert had asked for a million dollars at the time, but Lassiter had decided to give him only 300000 conveyed in a brown paper bag aboard Lassiter's Learjet as he flew the Clintons to the 1983 Kentucky Derby, which I actually believe is where they met Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, where the two governors and their wives would socialize as usual. I just took care of John Wise's money problem, and associate would remember Lassiter telling him after the trip to Kentucky with the future president and first lady. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's very telling. You have this milieu. And you know, I mean, this is a reason Americans uh, are so angry uh, that this political class has uh, behaved uh, in this way. I mean, they've lived such you know, decadent lifestyle. They're so corrupt uh, and they've been above the law. Uh, and that's why they're, these kind of leaders are hated uh, throughout the country. Absolutely. All right. So. Uh, okay, so my other question I had for you, too, was the connections between Clinton and the Bush family, because my sort of interpretation was always that Clinton was sort of a uh, front man or maybe concierge or something like that for the Bush clan. Uh, how do you feel about that? Um, that I'm not sure. I did come across uh, some connection with Bush. I mean, the irony is that in the 92 election you had two candidates who were central in the Iran-Contra affair. And, you know, Bush was already more publicly exposed in that. And Clinton could have actually called him out in the campaign, uh, but he didn't touch that topic. Uh, and it's easy to see why, because he has skeletons <laughs> as well. So, I mean, it just shows how corrupt American politics is and also how uh, the CIA is so... Uh, invested in politicians and uh, really, you know, controls American politics. And I think most Americans, unfortunately, are oblivious to that. And they often drink the Kool-Aid of one particular candidate. And they don't see how these, uh, you know, intelligence agencies are behind it, manipulating everyone and just cultivating this phony image for these candidates. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there there is a photo of Bush and Clinton I've seen you know, back when, when Clinton, you know, in the early day when he was the governor of Arkansas. So, I mean, I think, yeah, there was a very close relationship, but uh, it doesn't come out. And it's hard to uh, decipher exactly how they were working together. I mean, the kind of research I was doing, I, I didn't find any new information uh, than what's already been exposed. Well, do you have anything else to add about how uh, Clinton's image was cultivated carefully leading up to uh, his first presidential election in 1992? As you had kind of noted, he was uh, sort of this uh, rebranding of the new breed of the Southern Democrat. Well, yeah, but I think they cultivated this kind of phony image of Clinton uh, as this, you know, uh, kind of reformed or mature hippie, you know, that he had been a hippie in the 60s. And there are even photos, you know, where they, you know, Hillary and Bill kind of dressed like hippies. And I'm sure they probably released that. And, you know, he played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall and he was courting uh, the, you know, people who were in the counterculture in the 60s. And even, you know, Jan Wenner, and I think that was part of the, I would argue, you know, psychological warfare on the American public and deception uh, and a coup for the warfare state because it was designed to get the, you know, 60s countercultural elements who had protested the Vietnam War to support uh, the U.S. warfare state uh, after the Cold War. And, you know, Clinton packaged the military intervention on humanitarian ground that we have to stop genocide. And I think that was part of the thought as well. And, you know, Jan Wenner was the head of uh, Rolling Stone magazine and founded Rolling Stone magazine, which is a kind of iconic countercultural magazine. And yet he, prior to the election, I quote him in the book, he said, oh, here's our chance. We finally have somebody from our generation running from president and we have to support him or rally our support around Clinton. And I think, again, it was a total deception because Clinton had been recruited in the CIA from the early period. I mean, you know, he presented himself as this kind of, you know, free love kind of guy, but he was really a, a sexual predator. And there's evidence he was a, a rapist. Uh, so, I mean, everything about it was just an illusion. And, yeah, you know, he he was never really against the Vietnam War and, and he was probably an informant for the FBI. 
And then, you know, uh, but, you know, these kind of groups were supporting him and there was no protest. I mean, the protest U.S. foreign policy in the 60s came from the, the counterculture of the left. Uh, but now they believe Clinton is one of them because of the psychological warfare operation. And so there's no dissent against many of Clinton's foreign policies. And that's what my book is about, how ruinous a lot of these foreign policies were and how they set the groundwork for, for later disasters. And there's almost no opposition to that. Well, let's start getting into some of that. So uh, let's uh, talk a bit about the former Secretary of Defense, Robert S. McNamara, in the aftermath of the Cold War. So McNamara is a dubious figure in his own right, the whole fog of war and so forth. But his recommendations for the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War are intriguing. So what did McNamara suggest that we do with the peace dividend? Yeah, exactly. And here you have people who... Uh, or, you know, very much part of the upper echelon of the establishment who had tainted record, but maybe learned from some of their mistakes because, you know, McNamara in his memoir did acknowledge that, that uh, he had made a mistake about Vietnam, that he didn't understand anything about Vietnam uh, you know, before he went in there. And so, yeah, he's sensibly recommending that now the time, you know, the Cold War is over. That was the raison d'etre for all those military interventions the Soviet enemy is gone. So now's our opportunity to, you know, uh, scale down the warfare state and invest in the development of the American economy and, and the social welfare of the American people to invest in education, health care, and, and create a better society. Uh, and coming from, you know, McNamara, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful recommendation. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, Clinton... Uh, was in league with with the CIA and the military industrial complex and the large corporate interests uh, that wanted to promote, uh, you know, uh, wanted to basically um, expand the American empire, you know, saw an opportunity to weaken Russia uh, further uh, and for America to move into Central Asia and access the oil and gas uh, resources in Central Asia and expand, you know, American corporate interests around the world. So, uh, and that required a big, uh, you know, a strong military. So uh, Clinton did the opposite of what McNamara represented, and he hoodwinked people, as I was saying before, and the, you know, people in the '60s movements who had protested McNamara uh, based on the principles McNamara was later advocating for. They, ironically, a lot of them supported Clinton and his ruinous policies. Yugoslavia is a textbook case of what Clinton's approach yielded. So can you break that down for us? Yeah, and I learned a lot. Uh, I, you know, I I was like a teenager in, in college in the 90s. And honestly, I was kind of confused at that time as to what's really going on. And it was only really in doing the research for this project that I really um, feel I have a much better understanding of the conflict and how that really was an unjust war. Uh, because Serbia, Serbia and Milosevic was tagged as this uh, Hitler type character who was committing genocide and they invoked this massacre at Srebrenica, although there are a lot of question marks about what really happened at Srebrenica and conflicting evidence that would indicate that the Serb did commit uh, some executions, but that it was mostly of a you know, kind of battlefield uh, execution that the numbers were greatly exaggerated uh, of the people that they had killed. And it was kind of a tit for tat violence. It was presented that the Serb just uh, systematically executed all Muslims, but the Muslim forces had committed a lot of atrocities targeting Serbs right before Srebrenica. Uh, so there were some reprisal killings. And that's what I found. You know, there were killings on all sides, but the Serbs weren't necessarily the worst force in the war. And in fact, you know, they committed atrocities, but so did the Croats and so did the Muslims. And the Serbs under Milosevic had been trying to keep the Yugoslav Federation together because Yugoslavia you know, had been a strong independent country under Tito. And the U.S. You know, imperial mindset was we need to break up Yugoslavia so we could better control the region. Uh, we don't, you know, Tito was kind of a foe of the United States because uh, he was a very independent leader. And, you know, Yugoslavia flourished under his rule as far as, you know, socioeconomic indicators. So Milosevic is trying to keep the Yugoslav Federation together. And the U.S. is supporting secessionist movement in Croatia 
uh, and Bosnia-Herzegovina and ends up supporting Islamic fundamentalists. And you know the Muslim and the Muslim were portrayed as kind of saintly forces in the U.S. media, but they were anything but that. And they were even carrying out you know terrible war crimes and beheadings. And the uh, U.S. And, and CIA were involved in mobilizing Al Qaeda elements uh, to fight for the Bosnian Muslims against the Serbs. Uh, and even some of Bin Laden's lieutenants fought. Uh, and some of the, uh, I think, uh, some of the alleged 9/11 hijackers were even fighting there. So this was not exactly a moral coalition. And when I traveled in Russia, I met a number of Serbs, and they told me stories about how their a member of their family had, you know, had like terrible atrocities at the hands of the these Muslims. And then the Croats, who the U.S. was also supporting, carried out the largest ethnic cleansing in the war in the Operation Storm that was run by a private Amer American military corporation. Yeah, and that's one way that Clinton, the Clinton administration kind of hid the extensive U.S. role in the conflict was by using private military uh, contractors. And these were like retired uh, military officers who went to work for a private company and they were subcontracted. Uh, and the Croat leader, yeah, was also uh, had a background of even collaboration with the Nazis in World War II and uh, was a very corrupt uh, figure. So, um, yeah, so the, the way it was packaged before the public, and I, I think that sets the groundwork for a lot of the wars we see today, this black versus white, good versus evil struggle, and America's on the side of the angels and American enemies or the new Hitler, whether it's Milosevic or Putin. And the reality is obviously much more complex. And they're kind of hidden geopolitical interests and agenda. In this case, it was to break up the Yugoslav Federation and kind of divide and conquer. And the U.S. ended up uh, establishing military bases, you know, major uh, Camp Bond steel after the bombing uh, of Serbia uh, uh, following the Kosovo War. And that was part of the agenda to expand the U.S. empire bases, so to speak, uh, in a strategic region, and also to validate NATO and to give a raison d'etre for NATO after the end of the Cold War and to uh, expand American corporate interests because American corporate interests were able to move in you know, to Kosovo uh, and Croatia uh, because Milosevic was more of a socialist and the, the Clinton administration was pushing this common uh, free trade agreement and market and Milosevic was a holdover, the you know, socialist uh, who wanted to keep, you know, industry more under national control and uh, limit, you know, foreign corporate uh, interest uh, in Serbia and the region. So that's a key reason also they wanted him removed because this was an area, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, you have all these, you know, right-wing governments coming in place in Eastern Europe. And Milosevic was kind of one of the last socialist holdovers. So they, they wanted to get rid of him. And after the war, they supported the color revolution against him. So he was defeated in elections. And then they had him put on trial at The Hague. But it was really more of a show trial. Um, and he died under suspicious circumstances while uh, awaiting trial. So it was a regime change operation par excellence. Jeremy, you made an excellent point, too, about the use of private military companies. A lot of people tend to associate that as uh, beginning with the Bush II administration, uh, but DynCorp did play quite a significant role in Clinton's foreign policy. Of course, there were also um, some very disturbing results in the former region of Yugoslavia. I believe it was in the Serbia or Croatia, uh, one of those. Uh, some of the contractors were later convicted of uh, trafficking minors and so forth. Uh, but also, too, uh, there was the involvement that DynCorp had in Plan Colombia, uh, which was another initiative that the Clinton administration had launched during the 90s. Uh, did you get into Plan Colombia? Yes, I did. Yeah, and I would add that DynCorp yeah, was a key company, and they were indeed involved in the sex traffic uh, in Bosnia. Uh, and also MPRI was another huge uh, company involved, a private company based in Virginia, and they ran, it was generals, uh, ex-military generals associated with MPRI who helped oversee the Operation Storm, which was a major Croat offensive, which was the largest ethnic cleansing operation uh, in, the, in the whole conflict. Uh, so, and then, yeah, Plan Columbia, yeah, DynCorp played a key role in that. That was part of the expansion of the war on drugs uh, in South America. You know, Clinton 
uh, hired Barry McCaffrey as his drug czar, who was this uh, military general, and he, he promoted this militarized approach uh, to fighting the war on drugs. And Colombia, yeah, that entailed a huge investment arming the Colombian military and carrying out uh, sprangs of aerial sprangs of uh, drug growing fields. And that's where DynCor, you know, DynCor pilots supplied a lot of the planes and, and personnel and pilots. Uh, and I actually met some DynCor pilots and they said the you know farmers fired back. You know, they weren't happy that they were spraying uh, fields. And fortunately, a lot of the sprays, you know, poisoned a lot of community. There were terrible human rights abuses associated with the drug war uh, under Plan Colombia because they were spraying chemicals uh, and it seeped into the water. And, and some of the farmers uh, targeted ordinary farmers at times. Uh, so there were a lot of adverse health and environmental consequences. And then it was really integrated into a larger counterinsurgency campaign that the Colombian government was waging against the FARC. Uh, it was a left-wing guerrilla group that originated in the 60s. Uh, so they, and they claim that, uh, that, you know, FARC were narco guerrillas. So a lot of the drug war operation targeted the left-wing guerrillas. And really the big drug cartels actually hated the guerrillas and were allied with the Colombian government. And their, their you know, their paramilitary uh, armed were often tied with the and carried out dirty work for the Colombian military. Uh, so the the drug war was kind of a plan. Colombia was kind of a facade for expanding this dirty war counterinsurgency operation against the FARC, and it was kind of like a, a Vietnam type morass. Uh, and there, you know a lot of human rights abuses associated with that uh, and violence. And it didn't, it, it caused the drug trade to migrate to some extent into Mexico, but I believe drug production levels were not reduced under Plan Colombia. So it was a kind of textbook failed public policy, although some pub, uh, policymakers still present that as some kind of a model. I even heard John Kerry once say that this is a model and you know he was promoting the Plan Merida because Obama developed a similar kind of initiative in, in Mexico. And John Kerry was trying to sell it that, oh, this is modeled after Plan Colombia. And that was a great success of U.S. foreign policy. But if you look into it, you just sh shake your head at those kind of comments because it was not a success in any way. It led to huge human rights abuses. Uh, it, it didn't curtail the drug trade at all. Uh, and, there were, yeah, just it was cruel towards a lot of the peasants uh, who were trying to get by and have their land poisoned. Uh, yeah. You know, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. Didn't quite a few of them develop cancer, if I'm not mistaken, or something along those lines? Yeah, there were huge spikes in cancer rates and all kinds of sicknesses from these uh, sprays getting in the waterways and, and are getting in the food supply. And um, there were reports. Uh, even you know, the UN was writing reports and, and issuing condemnations of this. And some of the sprays they were using was stuff that it was banned within the United States. They were herbicide that had been banned uh, because of the uh, adverse environmental and health effects, and they were just kind of testing it on the peasants there. So it's kind of reminiscent of Vietnam, where they would test, you know, Agent Orange and uh, stuff that, that is not even known what kind of harmful health effects it would have. And then, yeah, these pilots I met say, said the farmers were firing back. It was very dangerous what they were doing, that the farmers were firing back at them, and it was like Vietnam, and they just wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah, it's it's quite a horrendous chapter in U.S. foreign policy, which is saying something. And sadly, it's uh, it's been grossly overlooked for years now. Um, one uh, other aspect of Clinton's policy that has, I guess, at least generated some talking, though usually again highly favorative and selective, is uh, his approach to handling Iraq. I remember quite a few times as a lad uh, hearing the periodic news reports that we were once again dropping bombs in Iraq during the Clinton years. Uh, was that about the extent of it or was there uh, more of this kind of uh, foreign intervention on hand? Well, yeah, it was, it was a very extensive intervention. I refer to uh, Clinton as kind of like a relay runner when it comes to the Middle East between you know, Bush 1 and Bush 2. He's basically continuing the same kind of policy. And you know, Bush 1 invaded Iraq, uh, you know, 
for reasons we know, you know, largely to try and control their oil and to get rid of Saddam Hussein, uh, who was, you know, feared that he would be a regional strongman. Um, and, you know, after the bomb, you know, when Clinton came in, he uh, ratcheted up sanctions on the on Iraq, which, you know, I mean, the country had the infrastructure had been devastated in the large scale U.S. bombing uh, during the first Persian Gulf War. So these sanctions, you know, prevented the rebuilding of their economy and even, you know, vital uh, material and medicines from getting in. So it caused a horrific humanitarian consequence for the people of Iraq. And even some UN officials resigned and accused the U.S. of, of, of genocide because so many children were being killed. And, you know, Madeleine Albright, Clinton's Secretary of State, admitted on 60 Minutes that something like half a million children had died of diseases. And she said she thought the you know price was worth it to contain Saddam Hussein. And so, yeah, I mean, Clinton was continuing the policy of trying to under, you know, promote regime change against Saddam Hussein, including through extreme measures. And he was supporting dissident, uh, anti-Saddam dissidents who mounted a coup. And Scott Ritter, the UN weapons inspector, wrote a book and he referred to it as the uh, as like compared it to the Bay of Pigs because it was a huge coup attempt, but it failed uh, spectacularly, and a lot of the coup plotters were killed, uh, executed by Saddam as traitors. And you know the U.S. the, the Clinton administration was supporting very unsavory elements, you know, as, as autocratic as Hussein may have been. The U.S. the people that Clinton was supporting, like Bush administration, were very shady, uh, who had longstanding ties, you know, to the CIA and wanted to just like privatize Iraq's economy and allow U.S. oil interests to just take over, and so they really didn't have uh, very much support in the country. Like Iyad Alawi was supported beginning in that period, and there were certain. Uh, political fat. I forget the name of the party off the top of my head. It's written in the book. Uh, the party they were associated in Iraq, but these were officials like with sh very shady background, like Ahmad Khalabi, you know, who had been in Jordan and was implicated in banking fraud and scandals. This guy Iyad Alawi, like they said, even as a kid, they used to play a handball at school, and that they were just scared of this guy. You know, he was like a mafia don, and like when he walked in the field, they just did what he said. They didn't want to get beat up. You know, even when he was like a school kid, and he was like more of a mafia don. So these are the kind of people that that uh, Clinton was supporting, as well as Bush. Uh, and they're you know supporting these regime change operations. They're funneling money into these opposition groups. And then it, Clinton started playing up the WMD, even though Ritter, you know, Ritter's memoir is a very good source for understanding U.S. policy and continuity from uh, Clinton to Bush, because uh, Ritter was a U.N. weapon inspector, and they concluded that there were you know no weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and actually that they were using, the CIA was using weapons inspector. That's one reason Ritter resigned, because they were using the weapons inspections to just spy on Iraq uh, and then to infiltrate the country. Um, but ultimately, yeah, uh, you know, some of the weapon that Saddam had got in the 80s, you know, uh, they were either dismantled or there was just, there was no, no presence of these WMDs, but uh, Clinton started playing it up, and his Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, gave this performance before the public that kind of presaged Colin Powell on uh, national TV about how Saddam had these stocks of anthrax, and it was just like a threat, you know, uh, uh, threat manipulation of the public, making it appear that Saddam was about to carry out some kind of chemical warfare attack, and Ritter said this was, uh, you know, the UN had included otherwise. Uh, so Clinton really started that, uh, raising the fear uh, about weapons of mass destruction. And then, yeah, he started, he carried out intermittent bombings uh, on Iraq, including in 1998. It was a pretty extensive bombing of the country. Uh, and all this is before the 2003 invasion. Jeremy, out of curiosity, did, I mean, obviously the U.S. had conducted massive amounts of bombings in, say, Vietnam, where well, we weren't officially at war with them, but I mean, it was effectively a, you know, full-blown war. But if I'm recalling correctly, wasn't the Clinton administration the first era where we really took this widespread approach to foreign policy in regards to bombing, where we would just periodically go and uh, drop a couple on nations uh, that had supposedly violated the international code or something to that effect? 
Yeah, well, that's one thing I discuss in the book because I have a whole chapter on Clinton's you know, war on terror. And again, kind of showing the continuity uh, in some ways, continuity from because Reagan first declared the war on terror. And then, you know, Muammar Gaddafi was accused. Well, he was accused of bombing a discotheque in the uh, mid 80s. That there was actually no proof that he did, did that. But that was used as a pretext. And even years later at the trial, there was not enough proof uh, to implicate Gaddafi. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was used as a pretext for Reagan bombing Libya and Tripoli in 1986. And almost it was really part of an assassination attempt uh, that only one of the, uh, I think, bombs failed. So Gaddafi survived, but his his grandson, uh, his granddaughter, I believe, was killed in that operation. So I, I think that set a pattern of just bombing countries after they were accused of terrorism, but there was no real proof that they were actually involved in these terrorist acts. And it may have actually been a black flag operation from research I did into that incident. It was a bomb in a uh, officer's club in Germany. It appeared actually to have been a black flag operation where they're trying to set up Gaddafi to give a reason to bomb him. And then, yeah, Clinton, I think, continued that pattern. Like, you know, he was accusing the Taliban uh, of harboring bin Laden. And there were numbers of terrorist attacks that were carried out in the 90s by al-Qaeda. Uh, and so Clinton just bombed uh, Afghanistan, although bin Laden had left. So the bombs, you know, didn't really strike a dent on him, on his organization, and it just kind of angered the people. And then, yeah, Sudan was bombed. They were accused of uh, manufacturing chemical weapons. But um, inspectors later found that this was really just a, uh, a factory that manufactured pharmaceuticals. And that uh, was considered, a, many would consider that a major war crime. Yeah, he just bombed this pharmaceutical a plant. And uh, people warned that it was uh, cutting off uh, people in the country's access to medicines. And there was no real pr proof uh, of any kind of chemical uh, weapon being manufactured there. So that's, yeah, the, the pattern we see of just these you know, accusing um, countries or place of terrorism and just bombing them. But the proof is never firmly established. Uh, in the Bin Laden case, I think there were ground that uh, you know, Al-Qaeda was involved clearly in, in certain terrorist acts. Uh, but there's a yeah, question of legality of bombing uh, sovereign country that that's hosting him. And yeah, the Sudan case is, appears to be just a, a fabricated story uh, or, or just, you know, maybe maybe Clinton believed it. I, who knows what he believed, but uh, there was no proof to confirm his belief and he just went ahead and bombed. So that's a pattern we see. Yeah, again, the war on terror when the U.S. bombed under Bush and Obama bombed so many countries, uh, very thin pretexts. Yeah, to me, this is one of the most horrendous aspects of U.S. foreign policy, um, along with uh, sanctions, because, oh, I mean, the, the thing about bombing, too, and to my mind, this also kind of plays into the more broader myth of air power and its infallibility, but uh, resistance movements since uh, probably Mao and certainly since the Viet Cong have developed very effective tactics for avoiding destruction by an opponent with superior air power, uh, often using tunneling systems. I mean, this has been I mean, since the 60s or 70s. So a lot of cases trying to destroy a rebel group or a terror group through bombing is uh it's a flawed policy to begin with i mean many of these outfits are very difficult to locate with bombs and oftentimes are operating in areas where they're inaccessible by bombs even uh, very high precision ones so it just seems like much like sanctions rather than dealing a decisive blow against our quote-unquote adversaries it's essentially uh, gaining more support for them, because as you're noting, a lot of times all the bombing really does is create a humanitarian crisis. Hospitals get bombed, schools get bombed. Um, none of this is conductive to actually waging a successful counterinsurgency, <laughs> to put it mildly. Absolutely. Yeah, I fully agree with you. And also, I mean, it's not addressing the root problem. I mean, with regard to the Middle East, you know, the bin Laden and Al-Qaeda was angry over the state U.S. stationing a military base in Saudi Arabia, you know, on Muslim holy ground. So, uh, I mean, until you address the root cause, 
And you know, a lot, a lot of terrorism uh, results from some kind of colonial occupation uh, or massive, you know, grievance of a population that they resort to terrorism, uh, which can be, you know, the air. I read a book by Mike Davis once. It was called because I used to teach a course on the history of terrorism, and it was called um, the Air uh, Buddha's Wagon, and it referred to. Uh, you know, terrorism like the Air Force of the Week or the car bomb. It was a history of the car bomb and referred to it as the Air Force of the Week. So, yeah, I mean, it's just you're adding fuel to the fire, as you say, you're causing more humanitarian crisis and more anger that they're going to resort to more violence potentially in response instead of trying to address the underlying grievance of the population. And you can see that, of course, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I go into that, I have a chapter on that, how Clinton, well, uh, you know, he was pouring a huge amount of uh, money into Israel and weapons and stuff like that. And although in that period, there were some diplomacy, uh, but the Oslo, the Oslo um, Accords were not so, uh, you know, really was kind of reinforcing the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Bank and Gaza, and it was accompanied by expansion of Israeli uh, settlements in the West Bank. So it wasn't really solving the grievances uh, of the Palestinians. Yes, but it always looks wonderful on TV when we bomb somebody back to the Stone Age, right? <laughs> Yeah, sadly, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, that that it seems to be a way to, well, I mean, yeah, one thing I think the Clintons you know, were, were savvy political operators, and I mean, they were shaped by their experience on the McGovern campaign, you know, McGovern in 72 ran on the Come, Come Home America platform, a genuine peace platform, and he didn't fare very well in the election, so I think they felt that they had to, you know, be tough in foreign policy, and you know, with yeah, CNN, I mean, don't forget, it was only in the 90s that CNN, with the first Gulf War, it was kind of the first televised war with CNN, where they had these mesmerizing images of these smart bombs uh, and pyrotechnic displays. Uh, and I guess that uh, excited uh, a lot of the public and, you know, politicians feel that that's a way to score political points by bombing a country Americans don't know much about. Uh, well, more broadly speaking, are there any other contributions Clinton's foreign policy made to uh, Bush two and Obama's war on terror that you wanted to address? Um, well, I, yeah, I cover like things like Iran. Uh, you know, they continue the policy of uh, applying sanctions and trying to undermine the Iranian uh, government. Uh, I also address things like extraordinary rendition. Clinton. Uh, really pioneered that, where they would kidnap suspects accused of terrorism and send them deliberately to countries where it was known the security forces were brutal and they would be tortured, like Egypt under Hodni Mubarak, who was a close uh, American ally throughout the 1990s. He also supported drone weapons, although they they were only um, weapon. You know, they only started firing uh, under Bush, but drone surveillance was used quite extensively uh, in the Balkan conflict as well as in the Middle East. Uh, so those were yeah key features. And then uh, yeah, it wasn't quite assassinating people uh, the way Obama and Bush were. But uh, it was it was almost getting to that. The rendition was was pretty big. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think in many ways Clinton set the groundwork uh, for the war on terror, and he really expanded funding uh, for counterterrorism and certain elite counterterrorism centers. Uh, so, but then there are egregious double standards um, because the CIA is continuously, you know, the CIA in the past had supported. Uh, terrorists in Afghanistan, and they continued to ma maintain some uh, uh, ties with Al-Qaeda, and they mobilized and used Al-Qaeda in the war in the Balkans. So that right there, the huge double standard of Clinton's war on terror, uh, and that he's actually supporting Al-Qaeda in the Balkans. And then, um, you know, so, and then there, there are shady things with regard to the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, that that's p potentially a false flag, as well as uh, the even some of the bombings blamed on Al Qaeda. Uh, there may have been cover-ups, or the you know the CIA may have since the CIA had infiltrated Al Qaeda, 
there are question marks uh, about some of those bombings and whether the U.S. allowed them to go through to provide a, a pretext to expand, you know, ratchet up U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. Uh, so. Well, all right, Jeremy, let's get into the canary in the coal mine. How did Clinton's policy set the stage for Cold War 2.0 with Russia? Well, yeah, I think that's one of the greatest failings of Clinton policy that really should have aroused more opposition at the time. And that was the expansion of NATO uh, in violation of a promise because the, and I think this is pretty well known uh, now that, you know, James Baker and the Bush one administration had promised Mikhail Gorbachev a deal that uh, NATO wouldn't be expanded uh, with the end of the Cold War and that Russia would be more you know, integrated into a security uh, agreement for Europe and more integrated into the European uh, community. But uh, Clinton, uh, you know, it was probably the lobbying of the military industrial complex, as well as there were uh, you know, some uh, anti-Russian uh, minority group like Lithuanians, uh, uh, who hated the Russians, who may have been a lobby for NATO expansion. And, and you know, Clinton decided to go against that uh, promise and to expand NATO. In 98, he expanded to three countries. Uh, Hungary uh, was one of them. And then, you know, NATO expanded much further, uh, really expanded toward Russia's borders under Bush uh, and Obama. And that really antagonized the Russian because NATO was set up, I mean, Russia viewed as a hostile military alliance that had been created in the Cold War, really for the purposes of containing Russia and, and facilitating uh, the uh, overthrow of the Soviet Union and you know, regime chain within Russia. So the uh, you know expansion of NATO, in, fa in fact, Russian uh, Russians accused Boris Yeltsin basically of doing what the German leaders had did at the Treaty of Versailles after World War One, you know, selling out his own people by acquiescing to NATO expansion. Uh, and Yeltsin was a hated figure in Russia, and that's one reason, you know, Putin or whatever his flaws has some credibility among the Russian people because he's seen as somebody stood up more for Russian interests, whereas Yeltsin was just a traitor who allowed NATO expansion and allowed the looting of his economy by foreign corporation oligarchs tied to foreign corporations under the privatization process or shock therapy that the Clinton administration pushed in Russia, which is something I go into as well. So these kind of policy had created a deep mistrust in Russia for the U.S. motives uh, and for the United States and empowered a more nationalistic leader like, like Putin who maintained credibility and led to conflict. And I also go into a little bit this in Ukraine, you know, the U.S. was uh, starting the process of trying to pry Ukraine away from the Russian orbit and to support European uh, leaning leaders, uh, however corrupt they were, because uh, Clinton was supporting Kuchma was uh, there in the 90s. Uh, he was more, you know, prying, trying to uh, orient Ukraine more toward Europe than Russia. But he was very, very corrupt. Um, and yeah, it was viewed as kind of a sign of the double standard of the United States that they're promote, preaching about democracy, but they're willing to support leaders like Kuchma, who had a journalist killed. That seemingly epitomized his brutal side. Well, to uh, wrap up, can you get into the left's ongoing infatuation with Clinton? Uh, yeah, I do discuss it. Uh, well, and I, I think it's it's part of what I was describing earlier that this psychological warfare operation uh, targeted uh, elements of the '60s countercultural movement who were made to believe that Clinton was one of them, that he was one of their generation, and that he would advance very liberal policies. When all along, you know, he, he was in league with large corporate interests. Because the first chapter in my book shows how, when he was the governor of Arkansas, he was variously closely aligned with the interests of three major corporations that dominated the state of Arkansas: Walmart, Tyson Chicken, and a Stevens Investment House, which was also corrupt in the Mina affair. So, uh, his politics, and, and then yeah, as, as we discussed, he was one of the New Democrats. Uh, and so, yeah, this was just a complete illusion that he was somehow this liberal figure uh, uh, who was part of the 60s generation when he wasn't. 
um, but somehow they still maintain a lot have maintained loyalty to him uh, despite policy that really sold out common Americans uh, and whether he's president or you know sold out the people of Arkansas in favor of those corp corporate interests and yeah if you go to Arkansas uh, you know I because I live in Tulsa which is not far from Arkansas and I go uh, periodically to Fayetteville and I have friends who are uh, well, they're uh, a good friend of mine. You know, he's he he goes to the meeting of the Democratic Party, although he is very critical of Clinton and Obama. And you know, I, I agree with him on a lot of issues. He's a really good guy. But yeah, he says he can't bring up anything critical about Clinton at the you know when he goes to these Democratic Party meetings. Uh, he can't say anything negative about Clinton uh, in Arkansas. You know, they still uh, are are tied in with him. I mean, I, I think in part he does have a very jovial personality. He can deliver a good speech, uh, but I think when you look uh, into his career, there's a lot of dark skeletons there. Yeah, that's uh, certainly putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeremy, sir, thank you very much for coming on here. It has uh, been a pleasure having this discussion with you, and we'll have to have you back here sometime to discuss uh, some of your other books or possibly some of the ongoing current events now unfolding. Um, real quick, before we sign off here, uh, do you want to tell the folks at home uh, what the book's called and when it will be available? Sure, yeah, my pleasure to come back. Uh, and yeah, the book uh, is called uh, Warmonger, how Clinton uh, set uh, the line uh, U.S. foreign policy trajectory uh, from Bush uh, to Biden. And the book should be, it was supposed to be released on December 1st. I believe you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's published with Clarity Press. Uh, so uh, yeah, hopefully uh, uh, people uh, learn from that book. And uh, also, yeah, you can find some of my writings at Covert Action Magazine. Uh, which covers U.S. foreign policy and covert operations and the history of the CIA. Uh, so we're hoping to build a larger following for, for Covert Action Magazine, which started in the 70s by a CIA whistleblower and, and restarted over the last couple of years. Fantastic. And I believe this will drop uh, right around the time your book is being released. So hopefully all of you guys uh, listening to this will be able to go out and procure a copy of it uh, once this interview is completed, or once you finish listening to this, rather. And uh, also, too, that's fantastic that you're uh, working to bring back overt action. Um, obviously, it's um, oh, it's uh, very revered within parapolitical circles, to put it mildly. <clears throat> All right, folks, uh, with that, I suppose we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing. I took it to the goat chain We were raped, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Never getting used to it, got bells of weed and cannibals
a Santa more diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it Don't need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got Don't make payroll, forget about your maple. 